Hello and welcome to our second podcast. Today in the studio, or Matt's bedroom, we have uh, Nick Masukas, local drummer for Reason Machine, leading entertainment lawyer in South Africa, director at the Academy of Sound Engineering, one of the chair people of Capasso. Um, thanks for joining us, Nick. Yeah, very welcome. Nice to be here and congratulations on the website. So what came first for you, Nick? Music or law? Uh, definitely music, Matthew, without a doubt. So tell us a bit more about your career as a musician. Um, when did you start and why? Uh, eight years old. My mother sent me for violin lessons insistently for three years in a row. And uh, I used to go to every lesson religiously and come home and not practice the violin. What I would do is pick up some wooden hangers and my mother's cake tins and uh, bash away until I taught myself how to play the, the first number that I heard Ian Pace play, which was Black Knight. The Deep Purple. So, kind of taught myself from there. Completely self-taught as a drummer, and never, never had a lesson in my life. And I bitterly re regret that today, to be honest with you. But uh, yeah, I've been bashing away since I was eight years old, and progressive rock is my thing. Awesome, man. And um, you played for the Helicopters years back. Oh, shh, shh, don't tell anyone. It's uh, supposed can, to be a secret. We can always edit it up, but I don't think we will. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm quite proud of the Helicopters as a live band. Um, it was in the days, you know, this, this was the 80s, and um, we were avowedly a pop band. Um, I joined the Helicopters sort of halfway into their career. I think they had a couple of number one hits already by the time I joined. But um, it, it was a venture which uh, I'm pretty proud of in terms of live performance. I thought we were a pretty good pop rock band live in the vein of sort of a lighter version of Def Leppard, if you like. But um, I didn't like the recordings that we did as the helicopters, so I kind of like to keep those ones quiet. I'm pretty glad that they haven't been released on YouTube anyway. Um, it was a pop band. It was a pretty good live act. I'd like to re-record all those songs one day. Though. That'd be cool, man. And uh, currently you play for Reason Machine. Tell us a bit more about what you guys play and where people can get hold of you. Yeah, we're all older guys. We are avowedly rockers. Um, a lot of people would call us uh, has-beens. Some more polite individuals would call us older in terms of generational value, we're a we're a rock band. We 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 don't we don't necessarily do it for the money. Although we kind of make a rule of saying to the people who ask us to play, nothing should be free. Uh, no talent should be delivered for free. So if you can pay us, do. If not, then ask us to do you a favor, and we'll put our own price on it. And then then we kind of play for free if necessary. But uh, we essentially start, started as a band that wanted to do songs that nobody else had covered in South Africa, like YYZ by Rush. I'm, I'm probably wrong in that. I'm sure Moritz Lotz would disagree, but um, we, we wanted to do a, a Porcupine Tree cover like Blackest Eyes and uh, a Rush cover, YYZ and that stuff. And we really were doing it for our own, for our own edification to begin with. Copying Simon Phillips in Lost Lobotomies is not easy, I can tell you. But um, eventually we got it to a level where we thought it was good enough to go out and play live. And so we do, even though we all do other things. Nigel, the guitarist, runs a studio. As you know, I'm involved at Academy of Sound Engineering. And all the other guys uh, have regular day jobs as well. But we take our music pretty seriously. We don't get on stage unless we feel that we're ready. Cool. So Nick, you've been doing music for a very long time. Have you have ever had um, any experience of getting stuffed over by someone, not knowing your rights and copyright, etc.? Matthew, it's as if you know my life story. Absolutely. I mean, I was a qualified lawyer, an admitted advocate of the high court, and then the helicopters broke. Okay. And 
we went on what was at the time certainly the biggest tour that this country had ever seen it was called the summer rave tour back in the late 80s and mango groove were, were just starting out they were our support band and the thing was an enormous success as far as we could see in terms of people in the audience. I mean, we filled the Good Hope Arena, we filled Standard Bank Arena, we filled the Orient Theatre in East London. Every venue we went to was full. We thought this was a, a massive success. We were all going to come back to Joburg and, and uh, uh, buy houses and Porsches and so on. We came back and the company that was promoting this tour just liquidated itself. Our manager kind of disappeared off the scene for a while. It was not to be seen. The label wasn't interested, even though they were doing big sales. Um, and the guys in the band looked at me and said, hey, you're the lawyer in the band. Do something. And quite frankly, I didn't know what to do, even though I was a fully qualified lawyer. And it struck me then that music law is a category of law all on its own. If you like, we, we lawyers use the term sui generis. I don't want to throw Latin at you, but sui generis means of its own type. There is nothing else like it. I had learned nothing about music law at WITS. And looking around at other law curricula at various universities in South Africa, there is no such thing as an entertainment law or a music law course. You, in America, there are two that, are, that I'm aware of, UCLA and, and NYU and Berkeley, have, um, have courses in entertainment law or music law. But there is no such thing in South Africa. And that's when it dawned on me that, hey, somebody needs to do the research here and somebody actually needs to start doing the homework and compiling information about this thing we call the music industry and the legal aspects of it. So I did. I started writing what was a set of lecture notes, which thereafter became a kind of a manual, then a handbook, I suppose. And then finally, I wrote the first edition of my book, I don't know, some 10 years ago. And now the fourth edition's out. So at least there is a resource now which is available for musicians to go to. And hopefully it's in understandable language. Um, that musicians can can resort to even if they can't attend a course like like ours um, which will teach them what the law is you cannot understand the music business unless you understand royalty streams and unless you understand where the money is supposed to come from then you know who is screwing you over and then you will know how to address the problem well that basically answers that question tell us a little bit more about your career as an entertainment lawyer yeah um I mean, I practiced as a as a criminal law advocate to begin with. Um, didn't like that much. You can you can imagine spending your life in the magistrate's court is is not that much fun. At all times, music was my thing. I've never given up playing the drums. I've never hung up my drumsticks ever because I know, as a musician, once you do that, it's probably going to be forever. So I've I've carried on playing all the way through, um, and I've tried to provide a musician's perspective to the research that I've done and the knowledge that I've got. Um, but having practiced at an advocate for a while, I then got an offer to, to go and lecture at WITS. And all this was happening while I was still playing. Um, and that's where I started doing my research and consulting to people. I think the first clients I ever had, I think, were in fact Mango Groove. Uh, Claire Johnson came to see me once and asked me for some legal advice and it all kind of started there. Then I had, the word got around and I, I had other artists and labels and managers and publishers all of a sudden starting me, uh, starting to approach me for advice. And um, this forced me to learn the lessons. This forced me to learn the laws and the practices and uh, the standards of the industry. It forced me to learn it by doing it. 
creating contracts, settling disputes, negotiating between artists and labels, and so on. And um, it all grew like topsy from there, I suppose, um, to the point where now I count amongst my clients Samro, uh, various record labels, various major artists, some of whom are prog, some of whom are not prog. Um, the prog guys generally get it for free. Though. Awesome, man. And then in, in brief, like as a songwriter or a performer, what copyrights exist for these for these individuals? Um, it's it's a very long and involved process. I wish I could show you a slide here. But essentially, lesson one in music is this. If you're a composer, this is lesson one in music. When you write and record a piece of music, there is not one copyright that comes into existence, but two. One is the copyright in the composition, the actual creation of the original work, the origination, if you like, the giving birth to the composition. That's embodied in Section 6 of our Copyright Act, if you want to get technical about it. But a second copyright also comes into existence, which is the copyright in the recording, or the recorded work, as it's known. That's in Section 9 of our Copyright Act. It's vitally important to understand that these are two separate copyrights that can be owned by the same person or could be owned by two separate people. The first person is more than likely the composer, or if he passes it on to somebody else, the publisher. The second copyright is owned by the person who facilitated the recording, who in your case could be yourself as an artist. But if you are signed to a label, you then pass that copyright in the recording onto the label. So now you have potentially four different people who might own these two copyrights or have an interest in these two copyrights. Each of these copyrights has its own separate stream of royalties that create income streams relating to those copyrights. And this is the vital thing to understand, and this is what most musicians out there who haven't done a course like, like we give at the Academy um, don't understand. If you understand the royalty streams that flow from the copyright and the composition as songwriter, and if you understand the royalty streams that flow from the copyright and the recording as label, if you like, whether major or independent or yourself, then you will understand where to go and get the money that results from those two copyrights. And traditionally, when I, when I give lectures on this, I, I, I put a slide up on, on the screen, and that slide shows copyright and the composition and the royalties that flow from that, which are mechanical royalties, performance royalties, and synchronization royalties relating to the composition. Then the second tree is copyright and the recording, and the royalties that flow from those are generally speaking needle time, which is still a matter of some dispute in South Africa, and I doubt whether we have enough hours to go into tonight, but um, eventually this thing will get resolved this year, I think, and needle time royalties will become available. Um, secondly, sales royalties, which everybody understands, that's the artist's percentage of sales that is usually paid over by the label. Producer's royalties also, also fall under this because essentially when a producer takes his 3 or 4% of sales, that's related to the copyright and the recording. And then, of course, synchronization as well. If the recorded work is used to sync to uh, a moving image, then there's everything else. There's um, appearances and live performance. Live performance is not the performance royalty which falls under the copyright and the composition. The performance royalty is the royalty that's paid to the composer every time his song gets performed to the public. That's not the same as being paid by the Doors to go and play in the Doors and do a gig. That's called a performance fee, very different thing. And then there's everything else, sessions and appearances and uh, endorsements and sponsorship and everything that's non-copyright related. 
And right there is hey, copyright 101. It's, it's a difficult thing to understand, and I've written 700 pages about that one slide that I've just described to you. So, in brief, how can musicians protect their copyright then, or register it for that matter, and, and do they earn off that by default, or, or how would they go about that? Yeah, I, I, I think lesson two, Matt, is probably this. Nobody earns anything by default. You've got to go and get it in the music business. It, it really is like that. And I guess, therefore... Musicians need to have an understanding of those royalty streams. Once they've got that understanding, they will then know where to get the money. Now, let's, let's start with the copyright and the composition, okay? You've asked, how do you register your copyrights in South Africa? Well, there are, there are several ways, but um, what people need to understand is that even though it may be harder to prove, it may be impossible to prove, copyright vests in you as a composer in South Africa, not when you send your composition to Samro or notify them of the work. The, comp the copyright vests in you at the moment you reduce it to a material form. That means that you might have recorded it onto a Pro Tools hard drive or a tape or a CD. And if you can date stamp that, then that is proof of your copyright. Another way that composers used to, a thing that composers used to do very regularly in the old days was they used to post themselves a score sheet um, and they used to post a registered post so that it would come to their address and they'd leave the envelope unopened so that if they ever had to prove that this copyright belonged to them, they could do so in front of a judge, open the registered envelope and say, right, th there's my recording, there it is, date stamped by the post office. This is proof of my composition. Now, this is starting to happen again. It's starting to come back because of late, in the last five or six months or so, Samro, Samro have indicated that they no longer require a CD or a score sheet with your notification of works. This is a quite, quite a new development uh, on the South African music industry and uh, it, on, on the SA music industry scene. And I, I, I think this is very important because a lot of composers are making an issue out of this. They're saying to Samra, how then will we prove our copyrights? And so far, I haven't seen an answer from Samra on this. I know that they're addressing it. I know that, that debates are happening at board level. Uh, but Samra simply cannot keep on storing all these CDs and and um, uh, physical score sheets that they've been receiving. So I, I think a digital solution is probably the way they're going to go. But for now, composers are saying, hey, we need to go to the old method, which is post ourselves our composition. So right now, as I speak to you in April 2014, I'm saying to yourself, yeah, uh, I'm saying to you guys, yes, protect yourself by sending your notifications of works to Samro, but also Register your works in another way. Send them registered posts to yourself or take them to a commissioner of oaths and get, get them date stamped. Take them to your lawyer who might be a commissioner of oaths and, and, and uh, swear an affidavit in front of him. Protect your copyrights in addition to the notification of works that you send to Samro. Because at the moment, Samro are saying, hey, uh, we don't want CDs anymore. We don't want score sheets anymore. For the moment, extra protection is required. What's, what's the most common issue that, that people in the, in the entertainment industry come to you for to solve? And also, you know, what's the demographic in terms of South Africa? Which, which genre has the most registered copyright holders? I can't be sure which genre has the most registered copyright holders. Um, I'd have to check that one. I'd be very surprised if it wasn't quite a um, township hip-hop house I'd be very surprised if it wasn't one of those genres, with Afrikaans rock uh, probably being a close second or third. 
However, you've asked me the question, which genre has the most problems? <laughs> Thankfully, it's not prog, although prog is going to grow, so the problems are going to come. I'm pretty sure of it. But it is without a doubt the commercial dance market. There's just something about that industry. It, out of every 10 disputes that cross my desk, I would say six or seven of them are a commercial dance production where a composer comes to me and says, I wrote this song, I took it to a producer, I paid him to produce the tracks for me, he produced them, I got my track, it never became a hit. Five years later, I hear the same tracks with a different vocal that was released by, through that producer by some label. That producer was involved in some way, and that artist has now become a star out of my song, What Do I Do? Please Help. And the first question is always, did you acquire the copyright? Did you reduce it to material form? Can you prove that you wrote the song first? And I prom Matthew, would, you would not believe how many times this happens. Uh, I must get six or seven of these a week. Seriously. And it all boils down to proof of copyright. Can you ascertainably show, can you dem demonstrate that the copyright was yours first? You had a notification of works at Samro. You reduced it to some material form, which, which is date stamped in some way. And the works are substantially similar enough. You're not claiming that somebody else stole your song when they aren't similar enough to be said that it's the same song. And this, without a doubt, is the most common dispute that, that crosses my desk. If, 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 I, if I had a rant for every time somebody phoned me about this issue, I think I'd be lying in my hammock in the Bahamas. What are the costs associated with copywriting music? There needn't be any costs other than reduction to material form and the, the ways of proving date stamping the composition in your name that, that, that I've spoken about. It's, it's not a hard thing. It's just something that artists seem to neglect. Composers very often seem to neglect because at the time they write the song, perhaps there's lack of foresight that the song might become lucrative, might become a money spinner or an earner at a later time. Perhaps it's the old adage of, hey, we want to be artists, we don't want to be involved in the business side of it, that whole conundrum. Perhaps it's just attitudinal, maybe it's just laziness on our part, but maybe it's just lack of knowledge. Maybe it's simply a problem of our industry not being educated enough as to how to protect itself. Okay, I want to move on to Capasso. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Mm. Capasso is a very interesting development uh, on the South African music landscape. For those who don't know, um, mechanical royalties, which are the royalties that are paid to a composer and or his publisher every time a copy of the composition is made, which is therefore a significant royalty. Mechanical royalties need to be handled on a societal basis. It's, it's almost impossible for a composer to track every time a copy of his, his song or songs is made, um, whether by a, a, a label producing physical copies or a sale on iTunes or a download of, of, of some other download site. Every time a copy is made, and also, for example, format shifting at the SABC, every time your song gets broadcast in the SABC, they are very likely to format shift it from, from CD onto one of their servers or hard drives and, and, and broadcast it from there. So that's a copy. So mechanical royalties can and should be significant income for composers and their publishers. But the history of mechanical royalties in South Africa is 
uh, a terribly sad and, in fact, internationally embarrassing one because we had an organization called SARL, South African Recording Rights Association Limited, which for five decades was the organization that handled mechanical royalties. And while most of its history was transparent and, and honest, regrettably, the last decade of its, of its history was not. And um, it turned out to be an organization that was being run fraudulently, not transparently. The composers were being um, uh, double debited for both agency fees and um, uh, administration fees, which is illegal. And it was, it was essentially running insolvent. So Sarah went under. How did it go under? One of their composers actually took them to court, a guy called Colin Shapiro, a very well-known composer. He wrote the, uh, the news jingle on SABC. Colin took them to court and they were liquidated. So that was the end of Sarrell. Very embarrassing for South Africa because Sarrell had all the reciprocal interna international relationships with other mechanical rights associations throughout the world. Big problem. In the meantime, Norm had been formed by the, by the publishers in South Africa because as, as early as the late 80s, they, they saw that there were problems at Sarrell. And then uh, around 2006, Samro also announced that they were getting into mechanical royalties because of um, the Sarrell problem, which was boiling at, at that point. And so at one stage, we had no less than three organizations in our tiny little market, which is 1.8% of the world music market, Three organizations fighting to administer mechanical rights. It, it was just ridiculous. Then Sarrell fell by the wayside, and then there were two, Norm and Samro Mechanicals. And essentially, Norm was representing the publishers on the one hand, and, and Samro Mechanicals were representing composers on the other hand, because Samro already represents the composers for performing royalties, as we know, which is broadcast or live performance of your compositions. But thankfully, thank you, Lord, hallelujah, my brothers and sisters, the light was seen by these two organizations. And for once, no, for the second time in South Africa's history, we had a negotiated settlement. And the settlement was that Norm and Samara Mechanicals should stop operating separately, should merge, combine into one unified force, and create a singular unitary mechanical rights organization. Why? Well, firstly... Can you imagine having two organizations competing to sell the mechanical rights for your music? They're going to be competing with each other, so the price is going to go down. The SABCs of the world and the record labels of the world are going to negotiate them down, aren't they, if there are two users fighting for your rights? It wasn't good news for the composers, first of all. Secondly, it wasn't even good news for the users either, because they didn't know where to go. They didn't know who, uh, who administered the copyrights, where the copyrights lay. They had to go to both organizations. It was administratively a nightmare. It makes absolutely no sense to have two organizations administering one musical right. So thankfully, thankfully, both those organizations saw the light, came together, negotiated, and are now in the process of forming this new organization, which is called CAPASA, which stands for Composers and Publishers Association. Now, you'll note that there's no of South Africa in there, because they intend this to be a continental organization. As an independent music industry observer, as a guy who writes about the industry and tries to be impartial, I've been asked to oversee this process and witness it, and I can assure everybody out there that this is being put together in the correct manner, transparently, by the right individuals. A very competent CEO has been put in place, and Capasa, I think, will be an extraordinary success. 
very importantly, it's not only going to handle physical mechanical royalties, as is the case with a flailing organization like uh, the MCPS, which is a, the mechanical rights organization in England. It's also going to handle digital rights. So the, the whole iTunes negotiation, for example, has already happened in South Africa. The people running Capasso negotiated that deal and have already got the composers an extra percent. Instead of 8%, it's 9% of iTunes every time a download happens now. That's great news. This is what Capasso is all about. Maximizing the revenue, reducing the administration, making it easier for the composers, making it easier for the publishers, making it easier for the users, and having a policy which is the right policy of one royalty, one society. And that policy is now embodied in terms of mechanical rights in Capasso, which is going to launch on the 1st of July. And I'm very excited about it. I think it's a very, very, very positive move for our industry. How can people register? Very simple. Capasso.coza or .org.za. I can't remember. One of the two. Um, just Google Capasso. You'll find the website. It's already operating as a, as a work in progress. Um, failing which, uh, composers can phone the old norm offices. Uh, the numbers on record. Um, the people who are setting up Capasso are currently, as we speak, in April to 2014, working out of Norm's offices, so you can get hold of them there. Uh, eventually, they'll be moving to other premises, I believe. So you're a huge progressive rock fan. Why don't you tell us who your favorite bands are? I'm a proud progressive rock fan. Check it out, folks. Uh, oh, man. I, I love my progressive rock. It's a very important part of my life. I could not live without it, quite honestly. I mean, um, I, I was brought up on Yes, Genesis, Gentle Giant, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Kansas, those bands. And then I thought music was dead in the 90s when punk happened and that whole thing. There was just nothing happening, you know, in the kind of music that I, that I love. Not to knock any other genres, but I'm a prog guy to my core. I love the weird time signatures. I, uh, I love the, the, the melodic progressions. I love the harmonies. I love the complexity of it. I just, I just love music that is... It's difficult to play, difficult to understand, but once you do understand it, it stays with you forever. And to me, that's prog rock. And I'm a diehard fan, always will be. Favorite bands? Oh man, how much time do you have? Look, I reckon the genius, the current genius of, of progressive rock, and one of the guys who must take a lot of the credit for the resurgence of prog rock is Neil Morse. I, I think the man's an ultimate genius. I, I just think that everything he's done has been superb. Um, Spock's Beard, really, back in the 90s, were the band that, I guess after Dream Theater, made me realize that prog rock had in fact never gone away. It was always there, simmering under the current. It was just quiet. It was happening, though. It was just happening on a smaller scale. Then Dream Theater broke, and I was reading up about Mike Portnoy, this phenomenal drummer, and he told, and, and he mentioned in an interview that one of his favorite bands was Spock's Beard. Never heard of them, right? I went and listened to an album called V or Five by Spock's Beard, and I could not believe my ears. I couldn't believe my, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was just beyond belief. The harmonies, this beautiful voice, these brilliant compositions and creations. I, just, I couldn't believe it was back. <laughs> It was like the old days, only better, because now it was with new technology and it sounded better. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So thank God for Amazon. Um, I had a lot of catching up to do and I went and got everything Spock's Beard had ever released. And then I realized there were more bands out there that were doing this kind of thing now. Frost, Magenta, 
it bites. Um, I know they, they're a sort of a, a resurgent 80s band, but still, the new It Bites, unbelievable stuff, man. Um, and really, everything that, that, that Morse has touched, I think, is, is brilliant, from Transatlantic to Spock's Beard to his solo stuff to Flying Colors, all very, very, very good. And then you, you think about bands like Haken, um, uh, R- Riverside, Beautiful, beautiful melodies and harmonies and wonderful compositions from from a Polish band. Who knew? Um, so it's all happening again. I'm I'm really excited about it because it, it's not so much the resurgence of prog rock as the re-recognition of prog rock. It never went away. It's just being recognized. And hey, you know what? It's cool to be a progger again, and I'm happy about that. So what do you think of the standard of local prog and what can be done to compete with international bands? Wow. Um, I shouldn't mention individual band names, right? I mean, I can... <laughs> Matthew knows I'm a New Earth fan. I mean, he knows that, so it's not a secret anymore. There, 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 seems, to be, there seems to be a hell of a lot happening on the, on, on the local prog scene. Um, this very website that you guys have created here, and I commend you for it, and I congratulate you for it, is a big deal. It's a massive thing that there is a South African progressive rock website which is doing podcasts. Amazing. Five years ago, that was almost unthinkable to me, unless I did it. You know, and I mean, I, I can proudly now report the existence of this website to the Neil Morse inner circle, who regard themselves as kind of the cognoscenti of prog, you know? And I'm very proud of that. South Africa is, is, is a progressive rock country, just like any other. Hey, house might be bigger, but it's also bigger in Europe. Commercial dance music might be bigger, but it's also bigger in South America than prog. In America, maybe metal, pure metal, is bigger than prog. Relative... To those countries, though, our prog scene in terms of percentage is growing, I think, as quickly, if not quicker than them. Look at the bands that are performing. Look at the gigs that are happening that you guys advertise on your website. It's hugely exciting. I wish I was young enough to go to all of them. But, um, hey, it is what it is in terms of age. But, yeah, I'm hugely impressed by, by local musicianship. I mean, there are bands locally that sound technically as good as... I don't know, animals as leaders. Seriously. There are bands melodically, locally, I'm kind of winking at you there, Matt, that sound like, almost like a South African version of the Flower Kings, right? So, yeah, I'm very proud. I, I think that South African prog, just like every other genre, is growing in tandem with the rest of the world. What's important is that we provide peripheral impetus to it. And what I mean by that is the infrastructure to make sure that it continues growing like it is in the rest of the world. Hey, you know, in America, they have huge prog festivals. I, I, I went on, a, I went on a, a boat cruise called Progressive Nation at Sea um, in February. And I, I was dumbstruck, number one, by the fact that there were more South Africans there than French people. Go figure. Now, if we could take that, extrapolate it into South Africa and maybe have our own progressive nation at sea, hey, maybe it will go from Cape Town to Durban, who knows? And the boat will be tiny, 
and we'll all get seasick, but who cares? That, that's what I mean by peripheral infrastructure. If we can do that kind of thing, support the local proxy, this website is the most important development. It's as important as the talent that's out there in terms of South African prog bands. That kind of infrastructure. Prog, prog artists supporting each other, making sure that they get each other onto gigs, making sure that the gigs happen. Sound companies coming to the party, understanding that this is an up-and-coming genre that needs assistance, needs help. Hey, I'm not, I, I'm not saying that Academy of Sound Engineering will throw its PA at you, but come talk to us, man. If you want to put a prog festival together, you know there's one prog fan here who's going to vote yes on the board. So stuff like that. Peripheral infrastructure. The talent is already there. Just like always. Just has, as has always been the case in South Africa. Talent has never been the issue. Business knowledge, infrastructure, and the ability to take care of the logistics of it are as important as the talent. If we take care of that, South African prog can hold its head up with the best in the world. I promise you. I go to a lot of international prog concerts. And I think our talent is as good as them. We have drummers here that are as good as Mike Portnoy or Nick DeVigilio, in my opinion. We have guitarists here who are every bit as good as Roy Nestolt from Transatlantic and Flower Kings. In fact, in fact, I'd say in some respects, maybe our talent could, also, could, could even be compared in a more favorable light than some of the bands that are out there. There are some Spanish and German and uh, not so much Italian, but Portuguese and other prog bands out there who are getting onto big prog festivals like Lorelei in Germany. And I tell you, they're not as, not as good as our local bands. So who knows? The future, I reckon, is rosy. Um, and any last words of advice um, to musicians, Nick? And also, if they want to get hold of your book or get hold of you for, for, um, for some assistance. Yeah, email me. Uh, nick at ase.co.za n-i-c-k at ase.coza um, let me let me put something in parenthesis here um, I, I, I get hundreds of requests every month uh, for legal advice I can't attend to them all I'm only one guy so what I do is I have a strict regimen of uh, I, I do 14 hours of pro deo work which is fancy legal profession speak for free. <laughs> I do 14 hours of free work every month. So, hey, get your inquiries to me early and you might get into that 14 hours failing, which I'll make you wait till next month or the month after that, um, because there's only so much work that I can do until I get swamped. So, yeah, email me. Anybody's welcome to do that and I'll do my best to answer their questions. Um, the book, anybody can get their hands on it. Just phone the Academy of Sound Engineering, uh, 011-482-9200 and books will be made available. And that really is the starting point, Matt. Uh, I would say that I'm not going to answer your questions if it's on page 13 of the book. I'm going to say go read page 13 of the book. You know, but if it's a more complex question than that, by all means. You know, I'm always interested in, in researching, and the only way I can research is by answering questions. Thanks again to Nick for joining us and to everybody who's tuned into this podcast. We hope this was useful and that you've gained some knowledge on how to protect yourself in the maelstrom of creative and hungry minds. Until next time, goodbye and keep supporting local music.